This morning, we are finishing our sermon series, The Servant King, and our scripture reading is Mark 15, verses 42 through 16, 8. Join me there. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought, bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, happy Easter. My name is Nate. If I haven't met you yet, really good to have you with us. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, let me say a special thanks uh, and welcome to those who are visiting. I know we've got a lot of family in town, um, but maybe you're just visiting. Maybe, you're, maybe you lost a bet and had to show up for Easter. However you got here, um, we're really glad you're here with us this morning. Well, we're finishing up The Servant King this morning, and you just heard it. The gospel, according to Mark, concludes surprisingly. Um, Look at verse 8 with me. This is not what you would expect. The final thing that Mark leaves us with is this. And they, speaking of the woman, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's a scene of terror. That's how Mark ends. And they're seized by it, because the news is this, the crucified one is now risen. Here's why it's surprising. You might think it would read something like this. And they went out fist pumping, <laughs> jumping up and down, dancing, egg shaking, whatever it would be, celebrating, right? That they had just heard the crucified one is now risen, but they're filled with terror, why does Mark conclude here? Well, let me submit to you, I think it's something like this. This news is so knee-knocking, so 
soul-stirring, that it decenters a person when you really encounter it. It cannot leave you on your seat. It cannot leave you unmoved if you really encounter it. It, it literally rescripts the narrative of your existence. This news, he is risen, is like a radioactive fallout that is not lethal, but a fallout that is life-giving. So, for our hearts to be sold, excuse me, for our hearts to be stirred, for our knees to be knocking, let me submit to you two things this morning about this news. First, it's historical. And secondly, it's revolutionary. So let me pray and we'll, we'll step in. Spirit, would you illuminate for us this news, the hope of the resurrection, and in the best way possible, would you unsettle us? Amen. Well, firstly, it's historical. Um, listen, I grew up, in, I grew up in, in the church, and I remember going to uh, breakfast on Easter morning, although it was after sunrise service, like we'd get up at like six and go to church that early, so we were really committed. We're all, you know, 10 o'clock's perfect, okay? Um, but I, I remember on those mornings um, thinking things like this. Did this really happen? I mean, sometimes it just sounded too good to be true. Other times it sounded too strange to be true. Uh, there were questions in my mind, a little bit like this, like, okay, so great, there's, somebody wrote this down, but can I really trust it? Because clearly these people believed it, therefore they're announcing things that they're biased towards. And of course, underlying all of that is just the reality that dead people stay dead. So, can I really believe this? And, and maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're just not sure. Or maybe it's been a really hard season and all of a sudden, this foundation of what you believe for a long time is just, feels like it's on shaky ground. Mark gives us three things in this passage, at least three things, that give a rationale for trusting that it is really true that he is risen. So let me give you these three things. First, look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Uh, Mark says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Madeline, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. He mentions three women by name. And Richard Bauckham, who's a, a New Testament scholar at St. Andrews, he talks about overall, like, why people are named in the Gospels. Uh, we saw a couple weeks ago blind Bartimaeus. Um, different people are named, and he makes this note that the reason why they're named is because when the Gospel was written down, they were still alive. You could go talk to them. You could go find them. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says there were over 500 that saw him, and he said some who are still alive. In other words, you can go talk to them. They were there. In other words, 
what you have to at least take account is this, is that Mark is writing not myth, not legend. He's writing according to ancient historical accounting, which is eyewitnesses. Now, what is also fascinating about this passage is these women are actually mentioned two other times. We heard it in our reading. In chapter 15, verse 40, at the crucifixion, all three of these women are mentioned by name. At the burial, the two Marys are mentioned. Salome is not mentioned, but the two Marys are mentioned. And then we get to the, the empty tomb and all three are mentioned again. And Pastor David Lee, this, this guy is so helpful because he says this, here's the deal. If those three women, or two women, like I said, at, at the burial, are not at all three events, then really their testimony cannot necessarily be trusted. And here's why. Because think about it. If they weren't at the crucifixion, maybe Jesus wasn't dead. Which means if they go to the burial and then the empty tomb, maybe he was just swooning. Right? Maybe he, I mean, he's kind of hurt, but he, he got out of it. Or, if they were at the crucifixion and the empty tomb, but they weren't at the burial, well, who's to say the body ever even got there? But notice what Mark is doing. He's saying, these three women, at both the death and the resurrection, and two of them at the burial, they're there. Mark is recording eyewitnesses' account. And think about it. The reason why it doesn't include Salome at the burial is because she wasn't there. He's accurate. So, let me be clear, Mark is not writing historical fiction that wasn't even invented yet, okay? Just so you know. He's writing ancient historical accounting of history. That's what Mark is writing. Well, at this point, you might say, okay, pastor, that's great, but can you really trust these eyewitnesses? And this is interesting um, they're all women. And in that day, some of you know this, women's testimony was not admissible in court. If a woman saw something, and was, they could not actually go to trial and actually be counted as credible because of that day. In fact, almost 200 years after Jesus was crucified and risen, um, as the Christian movement was moving forward, there's a guy named Celsus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century, and he was opposed to Christianity. And he wrote a number of works arguing against the faith. And one of the things he said, he said this, he said this, because Christianity cannot be true because the resurrection is based on the eyewitnesses' accounts of women. And this is what he said, and I quote, and we all know women are hysterical. That's, his, that's him, not me, okay? Just to be clear, that's the end of the quote. Um, so, don't you understand something? This has the aura of authenticity. Because, listen, if you were going to make something up, you would never make this up. And that day, you would never pick women to be the first to see Jesus risen or to hear the news. You'd never see it. The only way to explain it is because that's what happened. 
All right, thirdly, and lastly, many of us this morning come to this passage with a view towards those who lived back then in those kind of ancient times as very naive. Religious people, superstitious people who would just easily believe that someone rose from the dead. But here's what's interesting. As we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, um, if you've been with us, you know, three different times Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die and then rise again. Three different times in chapters 10 through the end here. And yet, as I mentioned a moment ago, no one's fist pumping, no one's celebrating. There's not even the disciples around. They're not even there. I mean, all they had to do was listen and then show up three days afterwards This is what Jesus said, that they would be there. And they're not there. And Jesus told them plainly. So this is the question. Why are they not there? And here's the reason. It wasn't plausible for them. It wasn't believable, even when they were told it. Do you understand? Just as it seems implausible to believe it today, it was at least, if not more in that day, more implausible. And I'll tell you why. Because these are the two dominant worldviews. The one was the Jews. And the Jews, many of them believed in the resurrection, but that was at the end of time for all people. Not one man in the middle of history. For the Greeks. Listen, the Greeks, they didn't like the body. Salvation for the Greeks was getting out of the body. The body was what was bad. A bodily resurrection, it was gross. It was untenable. It it didn't fit that worldview. And yet... This is what the scriptures tell us happened. Uh, Let me put it this way. This is another historical event. Do you know in 1903, the Wright brothers came back to their hometown after they had, for the first time ever, flown. And do you know when they came back to their town? There were no bands or parades. Rather, it was met by even the people who knew them well it was met with skepticism. One neighbor who knew them said this, it must have been the conditions down there. Others thought it was an accident. Still others didn't even reference it because it was so embarrassing to discuss anything so preposterous. Here's why. Because flying was implausible. There were Scientists in print had already proved and explained that it was impossible. And here's the point. Then why should anyone believe the stories about two obscure bicycle repairmen being able to fly a plane? That's why no one showed up. They had no categories for it. You see, ancient people had a grid. How they saw the world, what was plausible. We have a grid. But here's what you have to wrestle with. Then what happened? N.T. Wright, in his 738-page book on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he he puts it this way. Any first-century historian should recognize that whatever it was that the early Christians were expecting, wanting, 
hoping and praying for. This is not what they said after Easter had happened. Something had happened, something which was not at all what they expected or hoped for, something around which they had to reconstruct their lives. Friends, let me put it this way. Faith It is a gift, and I will say this, it is not something you can be reasoned into, but I will submit this to you, that faith has its reasons to believe this. And if you come to this text and you say, well, there's no possible way this happened, would you for a moment examine your bias? Here's what's at stake for all of us. Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he did not rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like this teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Friends, you understand this knee-knocking, soul-stirring news? You understand why they're so filled with terror? Because this completely rescripted everything. Secondly, this is revolutionary news. You know, in verse 6, the angel announces the news, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. You know, remember for a moment, back at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the very first words that Mark records out of Jesus' mouth are these. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And what Jesus was suggesting and saying and stating was that, guess what? The rule and reign of God is breaking into history. And when Jesus, risen from the dead... When that's the news, that means he's the king and he's reigning. The claim is that he has defeated sin and death and Satan himself. And here's the point. Although the kingdom has not yet fully arrived, the resurrection means there is real and substantial hope. Real hope now. So let me give you three ways this hope interacts and reconstructs our lives. Let me talk about the past, about the future, and about the present. First, the past. Um, Let me just grab uh, an element from Romans chapter 4. Paul is writing, if you remember Paul, he was a man who persecuted Christians and then became a Christian. And he wrote this, speaking of Jesus, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And listen, the, the term justification is a very meaty term, but it's, it's a legal term. It, it means there's a verdict, and the verdict is this, you're declared righteous. And when Paul writes this, he's saying, when Jesus rose from the dead, well, let me back up one moment here. The backdrop to this passage is that one day God is going to judge this entire world, every person based on their works. Every person. And what Paul says here is that those who place their hope in Christ, their future legal verdict 
is brought all the way forward into the present moment. And it means you are declared righteous. Your record is spotless. And it's, listen, it, it's not because it is in the sense of what we've done. It is because of the work of Christ crucified and risen. He's done it. It's his victory. And it's offered. You know, um, John Newton, he wrote, um, probably familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace. The backstory to his life was that he was a slave ship master. And he became a Christian. And we have a letter in 1801 that he wrote, 50 years after his conversion. He had been in the ministry for 35 years. And he writes this to a friend. He says this, There have not been two hours in my waking life since the events of 1754 in Africa that I have not thought of what I did. Do you you see what Newton is saying? He's saying, I know my past. He was mindful of the horrible things he had done, even 50 years later. Let me ask you, do you ever struggle with your past? Does it litigate and give you accusations about what you've done or who you've been? The resurrection gives hope. Let me put it this way. You know, in, at the end of chapter 16, we'll, we'll go here a little bit later as well, but um, the angel tells these women to go get Peter, that Jesus is going to meet Peter in Galilee. This is right after, right after Peter had denied him three times, and Jesus told him he would do it, and Peter said, no, I'm not, right? And guess what? Why does it say Peter here? Because some of us, I would say most of us need to know that when we fail, that his love remains faithful. Do you understand that? The hope of the resurrection means that your past is forgiven. But secondly, it also speaks to our future. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, uh, Paul is doing a chapter on the implications of the resurrection. And he says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul is quoting sections of Hosea and Isaiah, or excuse me, Hosea and Isaiah. And let me put it this way. This is poetic trash talk. That's what it is. Listen, if you've ever played a sport and you've ever trash talked, um, there's a couple things, right? One is you do it because you want to get in your opponent's head. But secondly, you also realize you need to back it up, right? It does no good if you don't back it up. And the reason why Paul is using poetic trash talk to talk about death is because of the resurrection of Jesus, death has been defanged. Charles Spurgeon said that Jesus has turned the tomb into a bed and dying into just waking up. We will still die, but after we die, we will wake as if from a refreshing night's sleep, and Jesus will lead us by the hand 
into life that will never end. So there's a past hope, and there's a future hope, and there's a present hope. Let's go to verse 7 for this final one. The angel says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Consider this for a moment. This is going to be the recommissioning of Jesus' disciples. The news does not stop with the angel, right? Jesus is going to recommission them. The the resurrection means for those who believe it, there is work to be done. There is a king to be served. There is news to be shared. The implications are so vast, but let me just share one story with you. Pastor Jeremy Treat, he visited Kibera, a poor area of Kenya. As he walked into it, um, there was just open sewage and children playing in the mud without any clothes. On the way on his trip, he walked by a 12-year-old, and the guide said that, this was, that she was a prostitute. He arrived at a building little more than a shack, and inside there was a church service. And there were 70 people singing at the top of their lungs in Swahili. And Pastor Jeremy, writing about this, said this, that he saw in that impoverished slum, he knew the kingdom had come, not yet, in the fullness of God's future promise, but it was there in the midst of the most horrific suffering and brokenness I've seen. God's reign was breaking in and transforming the lives of real people. These people had nothing, and yet they knew in Christ they had everything. And friends, this church was not content to leave their community in its state. Jeremy writes that throughout the day, he heard stories of how these people loved and served others in the community. He concludes this way, what I saw in that little shack was a glimpse of the same power that will one day renew all of creation. Listen, if you've been welcomed in by this news, this relationship with Christ, you've been sent out recommissioned. Friends, let me put it this way. If you want to experience this news, if you want to experience the soul-stirring, knee-knocking reality that he has risen, it can only be experienced by grace. It's interesting that these final moments, think about who's hearing this news. Firstly, it's women I already stated this, but in that day and age, women were not significant. They were on the margins, and yet they're the first ones to hear the news. That says something about this news. That means if you feel like an outsider, if you feel unimportant, do you understand? This news is for you. He's risen. Or consider for a moment Peter again and the disciples as they encountered this news. I mean, just consider for a moment. They had just abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. Peter had denied him three times. They're insiders with Jesus, and yet they've failed him. And guess what? They're welcomed into this news and recommissioned. Listen, this news 
is only received not because of your performance, not because you've achieved something. It can only be received by grace through faith. I said this Friday night at the Good Friday service, but really it's just true. All you need is need. That's how you receive it. That's how you're changed. And that's what changed the world. Frederick Buechner put it this way, God makes his saints out of fools and sinners because there's nothing much else to make them out of. So friends, go to the risen Jesus. He will meet you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this news that you've risen. Would you enable us where we are presently, whether we're weary, whether we're doubting, whether we're encouraged, whether we're fearful, would you rattle us with this remarkable news that you are risen? And would you change us with it? We pray this in the risen Christ's name.